The information in this broadcast is for educational purposes only and is not provided as a professional service, medical advice, or is it intended or implied to be a substitute for diagnosis or treatment. You are encouraged to confirm any information obtained from this broadcast with other sources and review all information regarding any medical condition or treatment with your physician and other appropriate healthcare providers. Hi, I'm Pete Levine. Welcome to Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified. I'm a clinical instructor and clinical researcher. I've co-authored dozens of scientific journal articles about brain injury recovery, and I'm also the author of the book, Stronger After Stroke. I'm Deborah Battistella, occupational therapist, creator of the OT's Guide to Mirror Therapy, and an OT educator. I have a lot of experience working with survivors. Most of my clinical practice has been in a certified stroke center. Pete and I are especially interested in talking about what rehab, neuroscience, and clinical research all have to say about the brain and recovery. But don't worry, our job is to make this stuff simple. We're here to make it so that everyone, clinicians, clinical students, caregivers, and most importantly, the survivor, understands what it takes to leverage their great neuroplastic brain for recovery. What is another one that Adrian asked? He asked a few questions and we thought they were pretty good questions. You mentioned, here it is, you mentioned that eclectic approach was shown by research to be the most effective. Does this hint towards a client-centered treatment plan, i.e. a client-specific approach, which may or may not include modalities, MDT, PNF, and task-oriented treatments? So I think that's a good question. There is little research about this eclectic versus a standard approach. I could only find one study. And a lot to chat across various web forums on the web about this eclectic versus a standard approach. But yeah, I only found one study. That whole standard approach always makes me have a question because I don't think I know what a standard approach is. Yeah, and what's an eclectic approach? Mm-hmm. So are you a little bit better from the... Um, Illness, the under the weight. What? COVID. <laughs> oh, is it? Can we talk about it? You know what? I really don't care. What difference does it make? Um, are you kind of over the COVID? Yes, I'm over the COVID. <laughs> so, what was the worst thing about it? Um. Uh, There was a point in time when I couldn't stop coughing, but I couldn't get a good cough. And that was really hard. Um, You know, that night when we were recording, that's when it came on. And I was, I thought, oh, you know, I'll be fine. And then all of a sudden I wasn't fine. And I just went to sleep for, for days. And then one day I woke up and I thought, well, I think I'm hungry. You know, it's like, I know I was dehydrated and the water bottle was right there. 
and I couldn't like even wake myself and up enough or even find the energy to reach for the water bottle. And water didn't taste like water. I lost my taste. So it's very hard to drink water when it doesn't taste right. And it's just water. But now food tastes better than it's ever tasted in my entire life. What? I have no idea what it's about. I want COVID. No, you don't. No, you don't. Well, if if for the rest (laughs) of my life, food tastes more like food and better, uh, I'll, I'll take that bullet. Oh, Pete, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Nix that. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Did you go back and listen to Bradford C. Burks? I did. I listened to that one today. And I have to admit, I am a little jealous. I'm a a lot jealous because that was a, a really good conversation. You know what my favorite part is that he talked about. Give me a hint. Um, well, the lived experience. Well, you asked yeah. him about his the lived experience of his injury and his hospitalization and rehab and recovery and how that shapes his practice. And he talked about how he went back and started a patient family-centered care uh, experience at his hospital and how he talked about we know these things, but we have to actually do them and how important attention is paying attention to people and then not asking people to fit into our schedule and getting things that we, we want done. And his example was the chest X-ray when there might be an important family meeting that needs to happen. And he really brought in the importance of connection and relationship because really Pete in the big picture of life, if somebody's got a few days left, isn't it more important, which we don't know, but isn't it more important for them to have that connection with their family than to get this chest X-ray that we think is so important? Hmm. Well, yeah, but he had experienced it and he wasn't going to die. No, and so, not everybody is going to die. But to me, is he made me think again about priorities. Yeah, and it sounded like it wasn't a difficult shift. It was a shift. Yeah. Well, do you think sometimes that the difficulty lies in the way that we think about this stuff? And then like getting worked up about what's expected of us in a day and, you know, getting everybody seen, like from a therapy perspective, getting everybody seen and not having to run around, you know, like from floor one to seven or, you know, I don't know, just the things that we have to do. Yeah. Sometimes I think he said this is sometimes it has to be done an x-ray right then. Yeah. But sometimes things can be shifted around to Mm -hmm. allow the patient to say, 
I want a little bit more autonomy in this place that is crushingly not letting me have autonomy. Yes. For anyone who wants to know what we're talking about, listen to last episode. Dr. Burke is uh, an MD and a, a research PhD. And he had a bicycle accident in 2009. And so, yeah, the intersection of the lived experience, but having to do things clinically is, I don't know, just would make you a better clinician. Actually, we got a really good email from Adrian. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know him. Do you, do you know him? I do not know him. However, he seems uh, like a very smart person and intentional therapist. And he wants to, he wants to do more. Sounds like. Yeah. Because Adrian asked a series of questions mm-hmm. and um, maybe this is a, bit of an ambush because you know you should just be polite and answer the email but of course we have taken it to the podcast because there are a bunch of good questions and one of his questions was what are some certifications you both recommend for improving my neurorehabilitation skills can we start off by saying that adrian has been working for about six months. He's an occupational therapist and he's been working for six months. And I do think that's important to know. Yeah. He wants to get certified Mm -hmm. right after graduation. Well, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about that. I'm really not surprised though by the statement. Because I hear that a lot from people. Yeah. And the thing is, I don't know anything about these certifications, except for Steve's a little bit. But I think that might be a little bit of an episode. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm. that should be an episode. Like, would we actually interview him? Mm-mm. Steve, I put it out there. So I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah. We could. I really would love to have him on the show. Okay. And that would just be one of the things he could talk about. But but if we did something about the rainbow of certifications on neuro and specifically about brain injury, um, we might get some other guests that could talk about it more so Mm -hmm. that'll be on the horizon so adrian uh that one i don't know enough about i do have an opinion though really i do Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so new graduates are always very very eager to know more and i think it's awesome i think they're is, um, well, I think Adrian has some wisdom because he said he's been learning a ton from the people that he works with. And I do think that there is something to be said 
about working, working and applying the knowledge that you gained over the course of your education and understanding what that really means, because it's, it's in that, um, like your connection with the clients, the way that they respond to you and what you learned and what does it mean clinically? Because textbook is always very different from real life experience and applying the basic concepts. Like, I think it's very important to have a strong foundation. And I know that occupational therapy education provides a a good solid foundation if you choose a good school. So I would say spend some time learning how to practice, learning how to be an excellent clinician, and then start to pay attention to where your interests really lie. And then Pete and I will have more information. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. You know, I mean, you have to give yourself a chance. I know personally, I've done things like I know I wanted to do constraint-induced therapy. I wanted to do research. I knew all of this. And when I was told no, when I did my proposal for my master's thesis, I was told no. I cried. It was very important to me. And I never ended up in a research path, but I had a very good path. I was able to develop programs that were actually implemented. Um, you, know, you take your opportunities when they come to you and you, you learn different things. I mean, the whole application of all these concepts, applying those concepts, that is the very hard thing for people. And so the better you get at that, the better you become as a clinician. That's my opinion. So yeah, maybe don't rush into one. Mm -hmm. But And would you have the clinical experience enough to know which one you should rush into or enough experience to understand what you're learning, it may, may be worthwhile to, to get a few months at least mm-hmm. uh, before you ha- have to go after one of those certifications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to take a, a deep dive into what the certification is offering, because the thing that I learned from you, Pete, about NDT certifications is not a lot of evidence behind it. So taking the time to really investigate these things and determining how they will, if they will positively impact your practice. I know as a clinician for a long time, I really loved my credentials. So I kept my COTA and then- Wait, 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 wait. So you are uh, an OT and a certified occupational therapy assistant. Well, I was until the National Board for the Certification of Occupational Therapy took it away from me the last time. Because were you running drugs? What was going on? So the time before when I renewed my certification, they 
they told me they had changed things that, so I had always paid for both the COTA and the OTR because the COTA meant the most to me because, you know, it was a very life-changing experience to get that degree. And, um, you know, other reasons I teach in an OTA program, and it's very nice to have COTA on the door after my name. But the last time I renewed my certification, I didn't call, I didn't talk to anybody. And that was my mistake. And they only renewed my OTR and they took away the COTA. I cannot get it back. They don't care. And it really annoyed me. But then I started thinking about all of this and I thought, well, I am not my credentials. You know, that's not, I mean, yes, it is an occupational identity, but it's not who I am as a person. It's not that that makes me a good therapist. So I, I do think that a lot of us get tied to our credentials, certification things. I mean, they make us feel important and they do legitimize some of what we do, but not everything. I'm sorry. You're only an OT. I know it's just wrong. No. Well, I still have my associate in applied science and occupational therapy assistant. So they can't take that away from can't me. Take, can't take that away from you. That's you. Right. Did you want to get into that neuro IFRA or do you want to save that for another conversation? Well, that, that's interesting because there's one. So there it's neuro IFRA, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And it was an offshoot of NDT. So this, and I forget Waleed. I've got it right here. Yeah. It is Waleed L. Abudi. He's an occupational therapist. Yeah. And he was sort of taking the neurodevelopmental treatment and he put it in its name for his treatment. The thing I remember about him was I think he was in the Israeli military and he took that with his PT degree and mixed it up and a little bit of NDT and made a new, um, a new therapy. Mm. And then I think NDT didn't like it. So he came up with this neuro ephra. And um, I can understand why NDT wouldn't like it. Um, because well, they're very particular about their certification and what they have to offer. Yeah, and they don't want anything else. No. Um, except maybe constraint-induced therapy, which they glom on to because they want to pretend that they've done a lot of fMRI, but they haven't, but it's really like constraint-induced therapy, which it's not. So we'll get into that later. But so the thing I know um, about neuroephra is the things that clinicians have told me in, um, in seminars I do, and especially out West, it's more popular. Well, it's based out of California. So that makes sense. And I've heard 
at least 10 physical therapists and occupational therapists that have taken that course and said by the end of it, they were in tears. It was a really terrible experience. Oh. And I think there's something very brittle about this guy and maybe militaristic and he wants to do that. And so um, that doesn't mm. sound good. No. And the other thing is if you go and you type neuroifra and it's spelled N-E-U-R-O-I-F-R-A-H into PubMed, nothing comes up. So how do you, possibly go to a training of any kind of treatment or technique or whatever it is uh, without a bit of evidence. And I, I've seen a lot of chat groups and long things about norephra and there are devotees Mm -hmm. like there are, there are devotees of, um, neurodevelopmental treatment, and they are strongly devotees. Um, but the neuroifra folks are doubly that or triply that, and they will defend it. I don't know, it's like a Shvengali, this Al Waid or whatever it is. Um, that sounds kind of cultish, yeah, kind of cultish, has no evidence. Mm-mm. Um, and so that one, I can't get behind for anything. Mm-mm. I went through the website today after you asked me if I wanted to talk about this today. And he's got these videos of treatment and he talks about, um, using videos and why hasn't uh, video documentation been used um, over how the years, he, how would he use, how is he suggesting, uh, using that? Like, what would you do instead of notes? He's got some videos on the site where he does, he shows evaluation movement. And then I did not watch the videos because it, there is no evidence behind this. And I just read his rationale for the videos. And it sounds like he was talking about using video as documentation. Well, we do written documentation. That's what holds up in court. And I, I can see a value in video and saving that. Like we have talked about using video on this podcast, but more for um, gaining insight for movement and things like that. But I don't think that that should replace any sort of example for evidence. It is not evident. It's not evident. It's not research. It's just, you know, it, it's like an anecdotal report. Yeah. Cause you don't know what you're seeing. No. And in clinical research, um, there are no journal articles that are done in video because you have to collect data and data is very specific. And when you look at a video, you don't even know what's going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And so, and you can't really closely measure it. 
No, and and there are so many variables and we've talked about spontaneous recovery. We've, We've talked about interventions that actually work and what parts of these interventions actually work. And we don't really know what is being used in this neuro IFRA experience. And it sounds like you have to go through a course in order to know more about it. Um, some of the therapists that I've talked to about it and have said good things, I will say that. And they say, it's just doing very highly intensive um, exercises and intensity does work mm-hmm. in stroke recovery. I mean, it's so what would keep now? I, I know that let's say this guy, what he says about research is I don't need to research it because I basically base it on NDT and that's been researched. So, and other, other treatments and the underpinnings of what I'm doing here has all been researched in other forms. Like I can't understand that because no, it hasn't. Why not do a few studies? I know. And I I know he doesn't want to pay for it, but if it's so great, why doesn't anybody else want to do it on PubMed? They, there is nothing on it. So yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. I struggled with it, you know, going through the site and trying to find something and, you know, as a non-researcher, the things that I do in practice, I want to make sure that I can tie to research and I provide the studies on my website. I have, there's a ton of information. When people sign up to be a member, I have a whole research corner and I talk about how we're applying the research in practice. And what does that mean for our practice? doesn't mean that I've done the research. Not, but I, we still as clinicians have a responsibility to look at the research. And, um, I just have a problem with the whole cult do as I say thing. It's just, it bothers me. It's not, I don't think it's, I don't think it's fair to the survivors. And I'm not saying that this is not a good approach because I have heard people in various Facebook groups speak highly of it, but I don't know anything about it and I can't seem to learn anything about it. So Nora Ephra, I can't get behind it, but some therapists think it works. Mm-hmm. And so um, maybe you can find one of those therapists and see, I don't know, they can explain somehow a little bit more about it and then what their outcomes were. Mm -hmm. And maybe if Adrian chooses to get a certification in it, maybe there's a research question that he can ask. And maybe there's enough people who would be willing to uh, do the research. All All right. What is another one that Adrian asked? He asked a few questions and he did. we thought they were pretty good questions. You mentioned, here it is, you mentioned that eclectic approach was shown by research to be the most effective. Does this hint towards a client-centered treatment plan 
i.e. a client-specific approach, which may or may not include modalities, NDT, PNF, and task-oriented treatments? So I think that's a good question. There is little research about this eclectic versus a standard approach. I could only find one study. And a lot to chat across various web forums on the web about this eclectic versus a standard approach. But yeah, I only found one study. That whole standard approach always makes me have a question because I don't think I know what a standard approach is. Yeah. And what's an eclectic approach? Mm -hmm. So in the one study I found, this is what they put in the eclectic approach. And by the way, it was unblinded and they didn't have a control. And I think it's exactly because of what we're talking about. How do you define these things? I mean, if eclectic means anything, as long as it's got, let's say, some evidence behind it, but they did only the eclectic approach. So nobody was blinded and it had no competition. So that uh, here's some of them, some out of sensory rude approach, elements of kinesiotherapy, active exercises without load, active exercises with load, weight-bearing exercises, strengthening exercises, elements of Brunstrom approach. I like Brunstrom. I know you do. Elements of neurodevelopmental techniques. Hmm. And it's actually neurodevelopmental treatment, but I I think sometimes they switch those terms around Mm -hmm. elements of constraint induced movement therapy, Mm. elements of repetitive task specific training. And remember the prime, I know, you know, um, priming therapies, Mm -hmm. mirror therapy and action observation and mental practice. That's right. Mental practice. Well, they had one of those and that was bilateral arm training. Mm. And it's funny what they said about it. All the participants showed significant improvements in all outcome measures. Boom. Do we know what those outcome measures are? Yeah. So, but unblinded doing outcome measures unblinded as this study did, well, they only had one. Hey, which, which were you in the control or were you in experimental? Yes. Well, yes, I was an experimental. Oh yeah. I was experimental too. You know, the interesting thing with not having a blinded study is that we know that humans, the brain we'll find what it is that we're looking for. And that's the thing that's kind of concerning because it can look like to you that someone is making this amazing progress that they wouldn't have made otherwise. And maybe it's just the progress that they would have made. So they did the upper extremity stream. What is that? Um, It's a upper extremity um, manipulating of objects and it's kind of like the action research arm test. Mm. Um, I never heard Steve of that. Steve and I did in a couple of really early studies, we did the stream 
Wolf motor function test. Okay. Stroke impact scale. They did the upper extremity Fugelmeyer because they were, all of this was dedicated to the upper extremity. And I think that was it. And how many people participated in that study? I think it was 25, but I'll make sure. Yeah, 25. Hmm. But they all did different interventions? Or was this a standardized eclectic approach? They all underwent 45 minutes of eclectic approach for upper extremity every day involving seven different treatment methods that I mentioned before, the, the root and the, all those other ones. They did each of them five minute for each method. So 45 minutes a day, how many days a week? Every day. Oh, that must be seven days. Every day for six days. Oh, okay. And, oh, it just went to six sessions. So that's a pretty short. It is short. That would be lighter than rehab light. Yeah. (laughs) But all the participants showed significant improvements in all outcome measures. So of course my brain has more questions like, well, where was the penumbra coming back online? Like where were they in their recovery? Yeah. um, That's a good question. And they were post-acute. Okay. I'll get some of the um, time since stroke in a second. Super tutorial stroke subjects. I wonder if that means cerebral. Supra. Supra tutorial. Can you spell that, please? <laughs> <laughs> I think I have the S-U-P-R-A. 10. 10. Tentorial. Oh, it's the region. It's above the tentorium cerebelli, the area of the brain. Below the tentorium cerebelli is the infratentorial region. The supratentorial region contains the cerebrum, while the infratentorial region contains the cerebellum. It's the brain. Okay. These were within eight days post. So that would be right when the penumbra would start to be coming online for most people Mm -hmm. and billions of neurons rushing online. And And we know that we're supposed to take advantage of that in rehab. Yeah, you got to get those neurons back to what they were doing before the stroke. Mm-hmm. But now these are riding the riding the wave of natural recovery, and it's hard during the subacute phase to do studies because how do you factor in for all these neurons coming back online? Mm-hmm. So you have to have a control here. Mm-hmm. This is subacute. You have to have a control because. Otherwise, they all get better. And that's what they did. It's just not a good study, but nobody else did it. Right. It's a good start, maybe. Yeah. And I, I don't want people to think that when I'm being critical, that it's because 
I'm trying to find something wrong. It really is just me trying to use my critical thinking brain to uh, determine what's, what's the best treatment course for people. I do love a client specified approach. And I love the idea of incorporating the interventions that the research says that they work. I, you know how I feel about NDT. I've said this before. I do think there are parts of NDT that are very helpful um, for being a good therapist and providing good therapy. Just don't know that it's uh, perfect for uh, stroke recovery, just in terms of it by itself. And I also think that PNF has some pretty good techniques that work. So why not use them? And I should say that that's what Adrian asked. In both of your opinions, should NDT and PNF be considered outdated approaches or do they still have usefulness? Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I do think there's some usefulness in these things. I mean, PNF does have some um, treatment principles that work and you know, if you're moving the body in these different diagonals, we do things in diagonal patterns. So I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily to incorporate it. It's just, um, I think it's more of the, the repetition that's effective. So what are the movements that a person needs to do? What do they want to do? And, um, incorporate those. And if they happen to be a PNF diagonal pattern, then maybe that's something you can document on. So proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation, this is an old one. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why he's asking, Mm -hmm. um, do you think they're outdated basically? Yeah. And so proprioceptive, that's the feeling of where your body is in space. And that comes from three organ systems, at least the semicircular canals in the inner ear, the three tiny little fluid filled tubes in your inner ear. And it's kind of like the fluid in the carpenter's level. And it'll kind of tell you where you are in space, according to the horizon. So um, that's one. And the mechanoreceptors in the joints. And so the, the force of the joints against the floor, et cetera, will tell you like you're more on your right side or your left side. And then your eyes will tell you where you are in relation to everything. So those three, and probably a couple other ones will, will give you enough information uh, to let you know whether you're falling down or whatever. So that's proprioceptive and like neurodevelopmental technique and the proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation have the same problem just in their name. They're suggesting they're doing all this stuff. So proprioceptive, that's the P neuromuscular. That's the N in anatomy physiology. And I tutored it. So that doesn't mean I'm a teacher, but I remember a lot. And the only point where they say neuromuscular that I remember is the neuromuscular junction, which is where like the brachial plexus and all the arms down, sorry, all the arms, all the nerves down the arm and where they, the 
terminus is where they hit the muscle. That's the neuromuscular junction. But neuromuscular here, I think they're somehow trying to take that, misuse that word to brain muscle. Okay, so proprioceptive, okay. Neuromuscular, okay. And then what do they add? The last letter F, and that is facilitation. So somehow they're claiming they're going to facilitate, which means moving the patient around in some magical way in order to do something brain muscle. And that's where, you know, first of all, no coach or in very few times people argue with me sometimes um, maybe in wrestling, but in almost no other sports does the coach come along and move the player around and teach him through his hands. I mean, most coaches would get punched right about then. Get your hands off me. So it just doesn't work that way. You don't want to, you know, tape your, your piano students fingers to your fingers and just, Hey, that's how you do it. And it, it doesn't work like that. A little bit of that will work, but not enough to change what's really going to end up moving them. And that's the motor and sensory cortex. Now these diagonal patterns that they do it in that they say is if you do a D1 pattern or a D2 pattern, a chop or lift, they say that incorporates every muscle of the upper extremity and they'd have a D1, D2 in the lower extremity. Um, okay. Yeah. I don't know if what it's like what I said, like if a movement is occurring in that pattern, fine document it. But I don't know about designing an entire treatment intervention around the diagonal patterns. Now I do know people who do that. Well, if it's the reason that they want to do the diagonals is because it takes every one of the muscles and uses it during that pattern. Athletes use it. It's not going to hurt anything. You put a 10 pound weight in your hand and you do that D1, D2, and that's fine. But to somehow jump over this river and then say, and we've changed the brain or the neuromuscular something. So, yeah. And, you know, it, they're very, very complicated. Uh, the physical therapy assistant program, uh, you know, the portion of that, the neuro course that is uh, showing proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. I just try to hide behind the desk and not deal with it because it is complicated. And I just think a lot of uh, time is used. Well, it is complicated and there's not a ton of research on it. And if you can spend your time learning about constraint induced movement therapy and mirror therapy and bilateral arm training and mental practice, action observation. Yes. Thank you. Couldn't remember that last one action observation and, um, 
there is a ton of research behind those and set up a nice home program for the person incorporating those and then do functional things in the clinic. Yep. That's now, my opinion. Take it for what it's worth. All right. A few people ask noggins and neurons Facebook page. Oh, cool. Okay. And uh, yeah, Jenica's being a smart. So about those big scissors. No, I, oh. I saw that. <laughs> um, and then <laughs> must not have had anything. So I see a comment on the noggins and neurons Facebook page, which is a fine page who every listener should join up because we're all friends and it's free. Jenica from trio rehab down there in Bernie, Texas. She had one thing that I should mention. You could mention how well the Dallas Cowboys are doing. Is that true? Are they doing well? I don't follow the Dallas Cowboys. Oh, okay. So do you more importantly follow? though, she did say that flaccidity sucks. Well, that, that, that is the worst of the three options. Um, yes. Muscular control is the best. Spasticity, I think, is second best because it has some control. And flaccidity, just that is very, very bad. Didn't Adrian have a question about spasticity? I have noticed in some patients that spasticity comes about in flaccid extremities and can be used to facilitate functional movement. For example, transfers and standing tolerance. Does spasticity indicate improvement in function on the affected extremities? Well, Stingier Brunson would say so. Through the first three stages, it starts from flaccid to a little bit of spasticity getting in there. And then at stage three, spasticity peaks. And you hope to, that you get to stage four in which the brain reasserts control because spasticity is the spinal cord asserting control. And you want the brain in stage four to reassert control. And so the spasticity goes down. So he's saying that when spasticity comes about in flaccid extremities, it can be used for functional movement. Yep. Mm-hmm. So does spasticity indicate improvement in function? Not necessarily. I mean, it could be so spastic that they are unlockable mm -hmm. almost. And that gets into contracture and hard end feel to the end of the range of motions and contracture. So I don't think that really helps anybody. No, but the right amount of spasticity compared to a flaccid limb, if it's in the leg, for example, could allow a person to transfer more safely. Because if there's some spasticity, then the limb can support itself when it bears weight. Does spasticity indicate improvement in function on the affected extremities? And so does it or doesn't it 
it depends. Maybe it's a modified Ashworth three. It does modified Ashworth four. It does not, but, but maybe it might. It's not a yes or no answer. That's right. It's the typical uh, gray area for therapy. Why are there so many gray areas? And a joke. Mm, it's an ironic statement. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you how much uh, we know about science. If we came back in a thousand years, it would just blow our minds. Pete, would it really blow our minds? It, or you know, if, it- if we just showed up, I mean, oh. they would, you know, hey, I got cancer yesterday and today I'm cured. Mm. Well, I'm kind of thinking about what um, Dr. Teasel talked about, the slow rate of change. So I wonder what our minds really be blown or would this slowness continue? Well, if you are thinking that you're going to live that long, and I know you are, then as it's coming to you, it would be a slow rate of change. But I'm just talking about taking you and me and transferring us into a thousand years beyond. And whoa, we, you know, yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure that uh, people who listen to this podcast are change implementers. Hmm. Well, there you go. She just uh, complimented all of you. Mm-hmm. I did. Well, I know yep. it's true. Yeah. Um, I know you wanted to talk about NDT. I don't know. I, I just, you know what I'd really like to say is I covered these older theoretical concepts this year in one half of a class. And I told the students, the reason I was covering these is because they will see this in the clinic and I don't want them to be completely blindsided, but the stuff that we spent a lot of time on are the things that work. And what Ms. Deb Batisella were those just tell me one or two of what, what works. Uh, modified constraint-induced therapy. Well, we talked about the difference between a constraint-induced therapy and a modified program, repetitive tax, task practice, um, all the things that we were just talking about, uh, bilateral training, action observation, mirror therapy, and mental practice. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Neurodevelopmental treatment developed by Berta Bobath and her husband, Carl Bobath, who I think was a pediatrician. They were both German. I think they were both Jewish and they had to split Germany as World War II broke out. As I remember it, I might not be right about, but I think I am. Do you remember history or World War II? What's that? I said, as you remember history or no. World War II. As I remember, as I remember the history of 
Berta and Carl Bobath. Okay, so NDT, it's right in the name, neurodevelopmental. Wow, you've already made your claim and stated that this can do it. And yet, and I looked this up again today and I looked it up yesterday, look on PubMed and type in NDT or type out neurodevelopmental treatment. And how about fMRI or transcranial magnetic stimulation? Where are those studies? Have they tested constraint-induced therapy with the fMRI to show it's changing the brain? Yep. Mirror therapy? Yep. Bilateral arm training with rhythmic auditory cueing? Yep. Action observation? You just observe somebody and that primes the brain? Yeah. There's a lot of fMRI. Um, mental practice? Yep. But neurodevelopmental treatment? Nope. Proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation? Nope. Neuroephra? Nope. So, you know, NDTA, Neurodevelopmental Treatment Association. Why can't they have a pool of money to do an fMRI study? It's expensive because fMRI is expensive. And it's not just the scan. It's the, the doctor and often a PhD doctor who has to be really good at reading those things. It's not going to be cheap, but why hasn't it been done? That's I a great question, Pete. Yeah. Now, you'll never see NDT or PNF in, they're usually put in the control. So would that fall in the traditional category? Well, I think that most researchers that use it as a control know it's going to be less than. Um, but, you know, I've just never seen any transcranial magnetic stimulation or, you know, any kind of fMRI, but I just don't understand why it hasn't been done. Why doesn't NDT put money into this and knock it out of the park? It's a very good question. And and is it because people are afraid of what the results will be? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's hard to look at something that you put a lot of belief into. Yeah. And then find out that it doesn't work. Maybe. You know, when Berta Bobath and Carl Bobath were developing these, they didn't even have good kinematics that they could do. You know, in the eighties, they took pictures or they took video videos of people walking. And then later on, they would take, you know, goniometers and they put it up against the screen. They go, put it up to three seconds. Okay. That's 35 degrees. Okay. Put it up to two seconds later. Okay. That's 37 degrees. And that was kinematics. 
but we do have kinetic really good kinematics now i i just don't understand i don't know i don't know if it's i don't know well it almost seems like it's good it's confusing for uh newer graduates at this point just based on adrian's questions and i'm sure he's not the only one who has these questions and makes these observations from what they learn in school and what is seen in the clinic. You mean it's more old school in the clinic? Might be in some clinics. I mean, it is around here. Yeah. Not here. I go. I feel like some, I'm such a negative Nelly sometimes. I really don't mean to be. Look, if in a month, a meta-analysis of NDT was done and it showed really good outcomes. I'd say there it is. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. And then, yeah. Suggest to, Mm -hmm. to people like Adrian to go to the NDTA conferences, Mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, I don't see it. Yeah. I love these questions. So Adrian, if you have more, keep them coming. Other people have questions, please, please ask. Did you want to go over Sarah's comments or just be done? Um, Let's see. What were Sarah's comments? Um, Where were Sarah's comments? They are in the noggins and neurons email. So she, I think she's in, she's the one who's in England. I know that she works in the community for a neurological rehab service and they have a multidisciplinary team. So they have OTPT, speech language therapists and psychology, and they have a neuro clinical specialist team, and they focus on all neurological conditions. They have a lot of stroke and TBI survivors that they work with. And she shared with us a lady she was working with who is about a year post stroke when she started working with her and noted that due to COVID, she didn't really get the inpatient rehab that she needed. And then um, she was talking about how this person had significant spasticity in her right upper and lower limb and no functional use of her upper limb. And so she had been wearing a resting hand splint for about six to eight hours a day. And then after listening to the podcast, she tried some of the suggestions that we had talked about and she implemented the squeezy ball to break down the spasticity. She implemented mirror therapy and passive sensory training and taught her some mental imagery as well. And she said she, she had to discharge her, but in terms of progress, the husband reported that it was easier to put the splint on her after using those interventions. And she also uses uh, Botox 
but it went from like a nine out of 10 difficulty to a five out of 10 difficulty. And I mean, I think that's a pretty big deal and wearing a splint less because when people wear a splint all the time, there's no opportunity to try to use that limb. I'm wondering why she didn't do the modified Ashworth. I don't know. Is five out of 10. Have we invented a new scale for the difficulty of putting on a splint? Yeah, that's a thing, you know, Um, It's, it's rather subjective. Yeah. Report. But you can do in the, in the fingers, the modified Ashworth, all four fingers are done all at the same time. You don't have to do the DIP and the MCP and the, in the pinky and then do the MCP and the DIP and the PIP and the, the ring finger. It, it's all done. All four of those fingers, the thumb is done separately. Um, but yeah, what else, what else did she say? She said that they consult with the EBRSR now. That's good. Mm-hmm. It sounds like they're implementing new things and they're trying to be more um, evidence-based and creative in their approach. Yep. The neuroplastic model of spasticity reduction, that's the squeezy ball, mirror therapy. And what's, what's the passive sensory training, do you think? Not sure about that, but remember we did do that yeah. episode on sensory reintegration type of things. And I wondered if that's what she was referring to. I think that is okay. Good. Well, thank you, Sarah. It sounds like you're at least trying it. See Pete, that's what I was saying before. People that listen to this podcast say, try new things. I hear Jenica in my head. She kind of drove that point home. Don't be afraid to try new things. Yeah. I do appreciate Sarah's email and her comments. So thank you, Sarah. It feels good to be back. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Thanks. (laughs) But you only missed the one with the doc. And I, I think I got you through it. And so don't ever do that again. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We appreciate your support and would love to hear from you. Ask us questions and share your thoughts by email at nogginsandneurons at gmail.com. That's noggins, the word and spelled out, neurons at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, please share this podcast with others you think will benefit. Also be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. We'll catch you next time on Noggins and Neurons, Stroke and TBI Recovery Simplified.